The scripture reading today comes from Exodus 32, verses 1 through 14. Exodus 32, verses 1 through 14. The scripture reads, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your guys, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people who you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped it and sacrificed it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord and his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from, turn from your burning anger and, anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he has spoken of bringing on his people. This is the word of the Lord to us. Yesterday the Lord gave us a glorious day at our picnic, amen. And those of you who were able to um, come and to participate in that. What a wonderful day it was. The Lord even held off the reins until most everybody was gone. A few of us got caught in it, but that's okay. We'll take the bullets for the rest of you. No problem. Um, It was a glorious day, and so many people contributed to it, and so we just want to take a moment. I want to take a moment to say thank you to all those who participated in putting the picnic together. Uh, those who served in a variety of ways. I know um, Tanisha did such a wonderful job in organizing that, and so we want to thank her for that. Amen. Particularly those who cooked the meat on um, picnic Saturday. You know, that is a task. That is a job. It's already hot out there, and to stand over the grill for hours and to make sure that all the meat is done and done well. Thank you all for that. And thank everybody who brought food and participated and um, played with the children and everything. It was a wonderful, glorious day. And um, we thank God for those opportunities here at East Point Church every year 
Somebody said we've been doing that for nine years now. Nine years we've been able to gather together as a church and to circle up and to be amazed at what God has done in our midst, growing us up in Christ in so many wonderful and blessed ways. Amen. Amen. Well, this has been an eventful week, um, to say the least. I'm always amazed when um, people get into Twitter wars with the President Trump on the Internet, uh, because I always say, you know, don't poke the bear. You know, he is the president, and he's going to have the last word, and he loves a fight. So just don't poke the bear. But it seems this week that we did poke the bear. Last week when we um, shared a message on uh, the devil and Satan, uh, I anticipated that um, our enemy would not be too pleased with us directly meditating upon his person and his schemes. And sure enough, um, this week has indeed been an eventful week, so eventful that uh, at least two people told me on yesterday that they hoped that I wasn't preaching on the devil again. <laughs> that we had had enough and we get the picture and we get the point. Stop poking the bear. Well, by God's grace, uh, we won't poke the bear directly this morning, but we're going to poke the bear. <laughs> Amen. Because the bear is not God. And the bear is limited. And the bear is coming to an end. Amen. 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 So glad that the Lord has brought us through this week, reminding us that no matter what the world or the enemy may say, Jehovah has the final say. Amen. Well, the Word of God has been read in our hearing this morning. Let us pray that he would indeed make it effectual in our hearts as we go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you have indeed been a good God, a faithful God, a God who delights to gather his people together in his presence that they may acknowledge him and glorify his name. We thank you that you would bless us with your spirit this morning, convicting us of our sin and comforting us in the gospel that is Jesus Christ. We pray even now as we go to your word that you would remove the distractions and that our eyes would be clear and that open would be our ears as we come and receive what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to the church this morning. Thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our faith, the one who not only makes it possible, but makes all that we are and do worthwhile now and for all time. We pray in his name and for his glory and sake. Amen. There was a uh, writer, a British writer named Dorothy Sayer um, in the mid to last century. She was a, a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant writer, a Christian, and a, a theologian of sorts in her own right. She once said that those who sleep 
through church have no idea what dynamite the gospel is. And she also reminded us that the drama is in the dogma. The drama is in the dogma. In other words, the great theological truths of the faith is where we find the most compelling and exciting validation of the faith that we profess. Oftentimes, people like to hear stories, and they like to read the mighty stories in the Bible, but Dorothy reminded us that is great, but be careful and remember that the real drama is in the dogma, is in the truth that these stories are seeking to convey to God's people. It is these truths that mold us and shape us. It is these deep theological foundational truths that form us into the community that we are, sustains us. And so the real drama is in the dogma. But if we are not careful, if we are not careful when we read the Bible, we can miss what the Bible is really teaching because we get caught up in the drama. We get caught up in the drama and miss the dogma. In other words, we can get so moved by the dramatic nature of the story and the compelling characters that we miss the truths and the power of God and how he is redeeming his people. We get so excited about David and Goliath. We get so excited about Joshua at Jericho. And we get so caught up in these stories as if they were movies. And we can miss the eternal truths that these dramatic retelling of these accounts want to communicate to us, such as also the case with our text this morning. The account of Israel at, the, at Mount Sinai and their worshiping of the golden calf. If you've ever seen the Cecil B. DeMille movie, The Ten Commandments, and looking at the age of the congregation, I would bet that most of you haven't. But some of us did. That's right, Bob. I see you up there. Some of us have, and some of us were moved, moved by the dramatic retelling of Moses as he leads, uh, Charlton Heston as it were, as he leads the children of Israel out of Egypt, governed by Pharaoh and Neil Brenner. Amazing, amazing movie. I haven't seen it. Go back and see it. For the time, it was absolutely amazing. But, unfortunately, there were so many mistruths in the movie. And I remember as a boy watching that movie, thinking that that was how it actually happened. Moses actually came down the mountain with the Ten Commandments over his head. And he looked down and he saw Israel worshiping his golden calf. And he took the Ten Commandments and he threw them 
at the calf, destroying the calf, the earth parted, the great earthquake came, fire came down from heaven, and God's people got swallowed up. And the calf was destroyed. And then one day I read the Bible. <laughs> and there is a different, but no less dramatic. And beloved, I want to suggest to you even more powerful account of what actually happened there. Don't get caught up in the drama and you miss the dogma because it's the dogma that saves. And this is a most dramatic account, beloved. I would suggest to you it's probably one of the more exciting and compelling events in the Israel relationship with God. This incident here in Exodus chapter 32 is dramatic, it's, com it's compelling, it's exciting. Yet, there is something here that God communicates to us today that is eternally important. So vital to who we are as a people of faith. So critical for us understanding who God is and what God desires to be for us. This morning, there are three important truths that I want to share with you from this text that are eternal truths that don't just govern this text, but they govern all of Scripture, and they should govern our lives every day day. And we see them right here dramatically on display. There are dogmas. These are the dogmas that are revealed in this drama. And there are three of them. There is the sinfulness of sinners. There is the righteousness of God. And then there is the necessity of Christ. The sinfulness of sinners, the righteousness of God, and the necessity of Christ. Now, these are the dogmas that undergird the drama. Now, I want to suggest to you, we're going to look at this text, but any text of the Bible, those are the dogmas that you should be looking for in the midst of the drama. The sinfulness of sinners the righteousness of God, and the necessity of Christ. Let's look at it this morning. Moses had been called up to the mountain to meet with God. And this is not the first time God had frequently called Moses up onto Mount Sinai. For Moses had a relationship with God, as we have seen before, like no one else. He actually spoke with God. God, and it tells us he had conversations with God, and Exodus chapter 33 and verse 11 reminds us that he knew God face to face. And these face to face meetings that he had with God happened oftentimes as God called Moses up to Mount Sinai. He let the people down at the bottom of the mountain, and he said, Moses, 
you come up. And oftentimes he would come up and God would give him instructions as we saw before that God gave him the Ten Commandments to give to the people. But on this occasion, he called Moses up so that Moses would receive, ironically, the orders on how Israel was to worship as a nation. He calls Moses up Mount Sinai and while he is up there, he gives Moses the orders. The orders on the tabernacle, the orders for the priests and the priestly garments, the orders for the offerings, the orders for the altars, the orders for the oils, and the orders for the incense. And God gave specific orders because contrary to what some people might suggest to you, God does not leave his people in the dark on how they are to worship him. God has always directed his people in that most important activity, and that is how and when and where they are to worship him. So he calls Moses up on the mountain, and he gives him, gives him specific in, instructions. But this time, beloved, Moses had been gone from the people for a very Long time, an extended period of time. In Exodus chapter 24 and verse 18, it tells us that Moses was up on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Some six weeks, Moses has been gone, gone from the people's presence. They are not hearing his voice. They are not seeing his face. And with Moses' absence, the people are sensing the restraints upon their hearts and upon their lives are suddenly being removed. And the true nature and desires of the heart emerge. It's like children who are left at home for the first time. They don't know what to do with themselves. They don't know what to do with themselves. For me, I remember, I remember starkly those rare moments, those times when my mother would leave me home alone. I couldn't wait because I could literally go in the refrigerator without asking. I could watch TV for however long I wanted to watch it and watch whatever I wanted to watch. I could talk. We didn't have cell phones. And so you didn't get on the phone without asking. I could get on the phone and talk to whoever I wanted to as long as I wanted to talk to them. I could play video games without interruption. Yeah, we did have video games, by the way. and I could play my Atari without interruption. <laughs> Boom. That's right. And beloved, I thought that was freedom. I thought that was fun. But you know what that was in essence, beloved? At its root, that was rebellion. 
rebelling against my mother's rules, rebelling against my mother's ways, rebelling against my mother's voice. But you do understand, beloved, that that rebellion was always there, was always in my heart. The only thing that restrained it was her presence. But when her presence was removed, who I really was began to show. You know, who you truly are, beloved, is not who you are in the spotlight. Who you truly, truly are is not who you are when everyone is watching, but who you tr- truly are is who you are when you are alone. When all of a sudden the restraints of society and the restraints of other Christians and the restraints of family and and friends are removed and that which is the desires of your heart begin to sense that they have the freedom to express themselves. Who your family is is not who they are when the pastor comes over. Who your family truly is is who they are when there's nobody over. There's no one else around. I'm amazed at how often I... I walk up on conversations, and as soon as I walk up on a conversation, the tenor of the conversation changes. <laughs> Ooh, oh, a pastor's here. <laughs> well, Moses, the pastor, Moses, the leader of the flock, is gone. He has left the children home alone. And what do we learn about the Israelites? Or better yet, what do we learn about ourselves this morning when we're left home alone? Well, the first thing we learn is the sinfulness of sinners and how we at our very core are just sinful and rebellious people. Someone has said, that absence makes the heart grow fonder. Well, actually, with the things of God, absent doesn't make the heart grow fonder. Absent makes the heart to wander. When you're absent from the things of God, you begin to wander from the things of God. And the longer that you're absent from the things of God, the more you begin to wander from the things of God. Being absent from church and the community of faith doesn't make your heart grow fonder for, for God. In fact, your heart begins to wander. Wander and wander farther and farther away from God. And so we see it this morning. It doesn't take long when you're absent from the things of God for the seeds of sin to blossom the sinfulness of sinners to manifest itself, and it manifests itself three ways. 
and the Israelites this morning does for us too. And the first one, it manifested itself in idolatry. Notice what they said in verse 1. Up, they come to Aaron. They come to Aaron. Moses is gone. As Moses is gone, they go to his second there. And they go to Aaron and they say, Aaron, up, up, Aaron, get up. Make us gods who will go before us. We don't know what's happened to Moses. He had gone up there and God done had enough of him. He could have tripped on the way and, and broken an ankle, broken and, and busted a knee. We don't know where Moses is. He could have fallen off on the other side. You get up and you make for us a God because we need to worship. And the reason that they said that they wanted to worship is because the human heart, beloved, is an idol factory. We are worshipful beings. We were created to worship. And this is why anytime, anywhere, you discover a community of people, you know what you discover? You discover people who are worshiping. All the people groups upon the earth are worshiping. They are worshiping something. They are worshiping someone. Paul Tripp makes this point where he said, human beings by their very nature are worshipers. Worship is not something we do. It defines who we are. You cannot divide human beings into those who worship and those who don't. Everyone worships. It's just a matter of what or whom we serve. And like Israel was in Egypt, all of us, all of us are saved out of idolatry. When you got saved, you know what the Lord saved you from? False worship. False worship. Just like Israel was in Egypt and engaged in idolatry and the worship of the Egyptian gods, as they have fallen into syncretism and some just fall uh, outright idolatry. When God saves his people, every person is saved out of idolatry. When he came to you to save you, you were worshiping. You were worshiping something. You were worshiping someone. It may have been no one but your own self. But when you were saved, he saved you out of idolatry. And since that is the case, beloved, the thing that we need to be aware of with our own hearts is that we are never far from falling back into it. It doesn't take much. It doesn't take much. For them, all it took was Moses being gone for 40 days. That was it. That was it. The absence of Moses. And that was all it took for them to fall back into idolatry. For us, it may be something different. It may just be the loss of a job. And suddenly now God is not worthy of praise anymore. It may be the loss of a relationship 
And suddenly God is no longer the center of your joy. It may be the loss of a loved one, the loss of health, the loss of a dream, the unmet expectations of life. And suddenly God is no longer worthy of your time and your treasure and your talent. It doesn't take much. It doesn't take much. And for them, it was just the absence of Moses. Moses was gone 40 days. 40 days. And they rise up and say, and say we need an idol. We need an idol. And what do they do? They make an idol. And what do they make it from? The same thing that we make idols from. Familiar things. Familiar things, but not just familiar things, but good things. And not just good things, but the things that God gives us for our joy. He gives us for our comfort, for our provision, that we may look at those things and glorify him. You do know that when, they, when Aaron says, bring me your gold, you do know where they got the gold from. It is God who provided them with the gold as they came out of Egypt. It is God who provided them with all of these resources. It is God who has given them these provisions so that they may be fully supplied when they enter into the promised land. And they take the good things of God and they fashion them into idols. So don't be don't don't be too critical of, 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 of the Israelites this morning, beloved, because the idols that we fashion are the same thing. We take the good things of God and begin to fashion them into idols. We take what God gives us for our joy and we fashion them into idols, like children. God gives us children for our joy, for our benefit, that we may look at them and raise them and be, be thrown upon our knees saying, Lord, have mercy, I need you. But instead of that, we take those little bundles of love and we make them the center of our joy. And they begin to dictate life to us, and they begin to dictate where we go, when we go. They begin to dictate what church we attend. They begin to dictate when we go to church. They begin to dictate whether we show up at all. Children that the Lord gives us, they become our idols. But it's not just children. You see it all the time. Jobs, relationships. Money, sports, I am amazed. Oftentimes, the Lord gives us these gifts that we might glorify him with our bodies. And then suddenly, these gifts begin to dictate to us how, when, where we worship God. No. Can't come to church this Sunday. Why not? I got a ticket to the game. Really? You make idols out of these good things. You see it, beloved. It's in the movies we enjoy. 
within the songs we sing. We turn love into an idol. God gives us this precious gift that is love. And rather than recognizing that it is to point us to him and his glory and match it, just the end of be thanking him, we turn it into an idol. And one of my favorite songs does that. It says, ain't no sunshine when she's gone. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. It's not warm when she's away. Is that right? Who is she? Did she hang the moon? Did she set the stars in its places? Who is she that the sun refuses to shine? Or set forth its warmth? Now, beloved, I get it. It's all, it's a song. It's all tongue in cheek. But I want you to understand something that when you're talking about a mind and a, and a world and a mindset and a worldview that is, that doesn't have God as its center, then there really is no sunshine when she's gone. And if you're not careful, beloved, if he leaves or if she goes, you won't worship God anymore. Because it doesn't take much for us to slip back into idolatry. Psalm 135 in verse 15 says, the idols of the nation are silver and gold, the work of human hands. That's what they are. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. In fact, the Bible reminds us that we become what we worship. And so it was with Israel. The sinfulness of sinners began to manifest itself in idolatry. Then the next thing it manifests itself in is in intimidation. They go from idolatry to intimidation, right? The Bible says in verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they gathered themselves together against Aaron. Now, beloved, you got to understand that Aaron is here looking up every day, hoping Moses would start coming down that mountain. Moses, Aaron didn't want no part of dealing with these people. And I can imagine for the past 40 days when Aaron came down after God called Moses up and Joshua up, Aaron and his priests came back down. And every day he was back down, he was looking for Moses. And Moses didn't come. But the people did. And they said to Aaron, get up. Get up. They gathered themselves against Aaron, the Bible literally says that. In fact, in verse 21 of this chapter, when Moses finally does come and speak to Aaron, Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you? 
What did they do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? What did they threaten you with? How did they intimidate you? We saw last week, didn't we, that Satan is a bully. And this is what he does. He uses intimidation and threat and fear, peer pressure. Peer pressure, beloved, is one of his main tactics. They wanted Aaron to sign off on their sin. And therefore, they intimidated him to do it. You know why they called Aaron? You know why they got Aaron to do this, beloved? It is because when Moses came back, if Moses objected, they could say, Aaron said it was okay. Aaron said it was okay. Aaron led us in it. I cannot tell you, beloved, I cannot tell you, beloved, how many times I have spoken to people about issues in their lives and confronted them on their sin, and they begin to tell me somebody else, some other Christian told them that it was fine. They read it in a book. They heard it on the radio. They've been to some conference. And such and such and so-and-so said it was okay. They pressured him. They pressured him. They pressured Aaron. And they threatened him. And when I'm reading this, I, I ask myself the question, beloved, how many of us, how often have you fallen because others pressured you into doing it? Or because you didn't want to be left out. You know what the Bible says? You know what the Bible says? Exodus chapter 30, uh, 23 and verse 2. It says very, very simply, do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. In Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 10, it says, My son, if sinful men entice you, do not give in to them. You know why? Do you know why Pilate sent Jesus to be crucified? When he knew that he had no legitimate charges to bring against Jesus. The highest authority in the city, the Bible says in Mark chapter 15, and verse 15, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them and he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. How many people, beloved, how many people have to do a sin before you think 
and begin to think that sin is okay? How many people have to say, well, that really isn't that bad, before you and I begin to reconsider whether it's not really, whether it really is that bad anymore? How many people have to justify a sin before we begin to justify it too? I get it. No one wants to be alone. No one wants to be ostracized on campus. Nobody wants to be ostracized at work or even at church for standing up for righteousness. I get it. I get it, beloved. I've been there. And that's why when I'm seen, when I'm, I sympathize with Aaron to a certain degree. Moses is gone. All these people are coming at him. And he compromises. He compromises. He builds for them an idol similar to what they had in Egypt. He fashions for them this golden bull. But notice what Aaron does. He does something very interesting. He does what we seek to do all the time, and it is a manifestation of the sinfulness of sinners. Beloved, notice what he does. The Bible says in verse 5, when Aaron saw this, saw what? When he saw them adoring and worshiping this calf, you know what he says? The Bible says, he then built an altar before it. He built an altar, and he made a proclamation. He says, tomorrow we shall be a feast to Yahweh. Wait a minute, people. Wait a minute. Okay? We can fix this thing up. We can put an earring on this pig. Put it in our nose. I'm going to build an altar to Yahweh. And tomorrow we're going to have a feast to Yahweh. You know what Aaron's trying to do here, beloved? He's trying to find a way. He's trying to find a way to do wrong. He's trying to find a right way to do wrong. Who hasn't been there? Trying your hearts to justify a wrong by slapping a little Christian knees upon it. <laughs> Beloved, the truth of the matter is there is no right way to do wrong. I don't care what the song says. If loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. Uh, excuse me. The most important thing here is that we are right. 
It is not love that is God. It is God who is God. And if loving you is wrong, then loving you is wrong. And you need to get right. And so it was with Aaron. And you can make all the feasts you want to make. You can build all the altars you want to build. But this idol is not Yahweh, and this worship is wrong. And how do we know it's wrong? Because it leads to this illicit behavior. Notice what the Bible says in verse 6. It says, And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. They did what Aaron said. They offered on the altar offerings, burnt offerings, peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drank and rose up to play. And what they offered, beloved, it was useless, it was meaningless, it was empty, and it was hypocritical sacrifices. And what they called worship was then accompanied with this excess of drinking and eating and all types of revelry and illicit behavior. And this again demonstrates the depths of human sinfulness. Because what they did what they did is they gave a nod. They gave a nod to the things of God. But then pursued their own sinful, lustful desires after that. Let me just put it real plain for you this morning. What they did was they got up and they went to church. And then after that, they figured they were free to do whatever they wanted to do. They were free to live however they wanted to live as long as they had come and given their offerings, as long as they had come and made the burnt offerings. After that, game on. Beloved, Satan does not mind you going to church as long as when you leave church, you leave church. He doesn't mind you going to church as long as when you leave church, you also leave Christ. He don't mind you coming here and doing your duty, showing up on Sunday morning like you've been asked, paying your tithes, working and serving in the nursery, singing in the choir, teaching in Sunday school. But once you finish, you go about your life and live how you want, with whom you want, where you want. And mine. Because he knows. And when you do that, all, that's all false worship. That's all false worship. That's empty that's hypocritical, it's meaningless, it's vanity of vanities. All of it is vanity, beloved. The only time you sing the songs of Zion on, on Sunday morning, then you may as well not sing them on Sunday morning. 
The only time that you get before the Lord in prayer is on Sunday morning. Then you might as well just stop. Because it's meaningless. And Satan is tricking you into worshiping the true God falsely. That's what they're doing. That's what they're doing at the mountain. Oh, they know who Yahweh is. And so they're seeking to worship the true God. They're just worshiping falsely. And we do the same thing, beloved. This is what Jesus said, right, in Matthew 15 and 8. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and thus they do what? They worship me in vain, in vain. And it was all vanity at the bottom of that mountain. And beloved, it tends to all be vanity in our hearts too. If all we do is come on Sunday morning and do our duty. This you see here is the sinfulness of sinners. Sin, sin, the sin of idolatry. The sin that intimidates, the sin that leads to illicit behavior. And what is God going to do, beloved? What is God's response to all of this? How does he react? And he reacts the only way that he can. He reacts in righteous indignation, right? For the real problem with sin is God. That's the, that's the problem with sin, is God. If there is no God, there is no sin. You don't understand that. If there is no God, there is no sin. This is why the atheistic worldview just falls apart. Because the atheistic worldview wants to tell people that there's a such thing as right or wrong without there being a right or wrong giver. The problem with sin is God. There is no God, there is no sin. In fact, I suggest to you that if God doesn't see it, then there is no sin. If you can hide it from him, you can get away with it. Yeah, you can. Ah, see, you thought, you thought, hey, maybe I can. No. Hide it from him, and it's all yours. If he doesn't see it, you're good. But you know what the problem is, right? The problem is that there is a God, and the problem is that he sees all. If my mother could have seen all I did when she left me at home alone, she would have never left me home alone again. But you know who does see, beloved? God sees. God sees it all. And because he's God and because he is righteous, he must punish. And he says to Moses in verse 9, for he sees in righteousness, he says, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked 
people. Israel, Israel may have been out of the sight of Moses, but they were not out of the sight of God. People like to say, right, out of sight, out of mind. There's a problem with that. That you're never out of the sight of God. Somebody says if a tree falls in the forest and nobody sees it, doesn't make a sound. Of course it makes a sound because there is somebody who sees it. God sees it. Because God sees everything. And beloved, this is a good thing, isn't it? It's a good thing when we're doing right. We want God to see it. When, 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 when trouble comes and somebody, an enemy, attacks us, we want God to see it. We want God's eyes upon us because we want God's protection. We want his care. It's a good thing that God sees it, isn't it? Until we begin to rebel, begin, begin to defy, and we begin to disobey. And then we don't want God to see it. We want to hide it from the Lord. But the Bible says in Proverbs 15 and 3 that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good everywhere. Everywhere there is God. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He sees what we do in the light of what we should do. He sees it all. He sees it all. He knows, he knows what we often hide from others. He knows our stubbornness. He knows our obstinate. He knows our attitudes that govern our hearts. And he knows what's at the heart of Israel. And he knows what they would do even if they had more time. And therefore, Israel is without excuse. They are inexcusable, beloved. For you do know, you look at this, and they are at least, they're breaking at least the first three commandments, if not more. No other gods. They done, got it. They done, they done built themselves a god. No image. They have built themselves an image. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. And they have tacked Yahweh's name to this calf. And we could probably go on and on. And God doesn't just see. And God acts. He acts. He doesn't just see it. He said, oh, wow, look at those wicked, stiff-necked, evil, sinful, rebellious people. But I got other things to do. No, he doesn't, beloved. He sees, and then he acts. Notice what it says right in verse 10. Now, therefore, take speaking to Moses, Moses, you leave me alone. Leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Beloved, so often, so often we tempt God. We tempt God because when we fall into sin and nothing happens today, we get the idea that nothing is going to happen. 
Nothing happened right now. Oh, I got away with it. Ain't nothing going to happen. You know what? The Bible makes it clear, beloved, that God is patient and he is kind and he is slow to anger. But let us not mistake slow anger for no anger. God sees. And what he sees, eventually he's going to deal with. And he's been patient with the nation of Israel. They've complained. They've been complaining since they got out of Egypt. They've been doubting since they got out of Egypt. They've been fearing. They've been disrespectful. And now they are dragging his name down, impugning his character, attached it to some calf that they fashioned with their own hands. And God says, okay, enough is enough. Moses, I know what you're thinking, but I've had it. I have had it. Israel is doomed. They were guilty beyond any doubt that they were without excuse, and God was angry with their sin. God is angry with sin. God is still angry with sin, beloved. The Bible says in Psalm 7 and 11, God is an honest judge, and he is angry with the wicked every day. God is serious about sin, even though most of us are not. God is serious about sin, and hell is his demonstration of his seriousness. How often have you heard somebody say, man, I just can't believe that so-and-so could go to hell. I just can't believe that person could be in hell. <laughs> I can. I can. There's not a person alive that I could not imagine being in hell because I can imagine myself being in hell. When I begin to contemplate the seriousness of my sin, and the reason you and I will look at another person, no matter how nice and how kind and how, how much a servant that person is, and convince yourself that that person cannot possibly go to hell, is because you and I don't take sin serious enough. But God does. And it doesn't amaze me at all that a person can go to hell. What amazes me is anybody can get to heaven. And anybody can make it in his presence. Yes, beloved, I know. I know. It is the goodness of God that leads men and women to repentance. I get that. But sometimes, beloved men and women reject the goodness of God and they trample upon the mercy of God. And when they do that, like God says to Moses, they need to be reminded that I am a God of wrath, that I take sin seriously, and that hell is awaiting those who don't acknowledge that I am God and there is no other. Notice what Moses says when God says all this, beloved. Notice what Moses says. 
He doesn't say, oh, oh, give them a second chance. No, beloved. No, Moses knows. He knows that they are guilty. He knows that they are worthy of God's wrath. He doesn't say, well, God, you know it's really not their fault. They were raised in Egypt. You know, they've been in slavery all this time. It's not their fault. You want to punish somebody, punish the Egyptians. He doesn't say that either, does he? He doesn't say, you know, God, you know it's really not fair. You know, you, didn't, you really didn't explain it to him. You know, you really haven't told him enough. I mean, you might have told him once, God, that's all you did. You need to tell him more than that. Israel's sin is wrong, God's wrath is right, and Moses is knowing. So what is Moses going to do? He knows that God is justified in what God says. He knows God is justified in what God is going to do. So what does Moses do, beloved? He pleads upon the mercy of God and reminds us that Sinful sinners before a righteous God need a Savior. They need a Savior. He pleads upon Jesus Christ himself, beloved. This is so amazing. Here is the most important question in human history. Here it is. Here it is. Okay? Here it is. How do sinful sinners get right with a righteous God? There is no more important question in all the universe. How do sinful sinners get right with a righteous God? It is because God has sent Christ to plead on their behalf. And here we see Moses, here we see Moses doing that, right? He is Moses at his best. Here is the reason why God called Moses. This is the purpose of his mission. Moses was called to intercede for the people. No matter what God says, here we see Moses at his Christ-like, his most Christ-like. He led, them out. he led them through the Red Sea. He led them out of Egypt. He gave them the Ten Commandments. But what they needed and didn't realize it, they needed someone who was going to stand for them and plead their case before God. This is what we all need, beloved. This is what we all need. God sent Moses to stand up for Israel. But it was only as a precursor. Because ultimately, he would send his own son, Jesus, to stand up for us, to stand up for sinners. You know what, you know what Israel needed? They needed Moses to help them get out of Egypt. But they also needed Moses to help them stay out of Egypt. Because one for Moses, they'd be going back. Beloved, you don't just need Christ to save you. 
You need Christ every day to keep you saved. Because if it wasn't for him keeping you saved, you'd be flying back to Egypt. And this is why, beloved, this is why the Israelites are not destroyed. The Israelites were not destroyed for the same reason that you and I do not lose our salvation every day. The reason you stay saved, beloved, and the reason why you don't turn back, and the reason why you are not destroyed because of your sins, is the same reason that God didn't destroy Israel. And Moses tells, them what, tells us what they are. He says, God, you can't destroy them because you saved them. I didn't save them. You saved them. Your power, your might, your hand, you saved them. The reason, beloved, you stay saved is because you didn't save yourself. Christ saved you. It was his power. It was his blood. It was his life. It was his death. It was his resurrection. You know what the Bible says? And we, we, we finish, we finish. You know what the Bible says in Romans chapter 6 and, and verse 9? The Bible tells us that when Christ rose from the grave, he rose to die no more. And all those who are in him rose with him. And guess what, beloved? He has given us not temporary life, not momentary life, but he has given us eternal life. You're not destroyed because you didn't save yourself. God saved you. God, you can't, you can't destroy Israel. You saved them. You can't destroy Israel, God, because if you do, the devil going to get the victory. And we know that's not going to happen. Notice what Moses said. Oh, God, you know that if you destroy Israel, you know what the Egyptians are going to say. They're going to say, you could save Moses, but you couldn't save the rest of them. Oh, beloved, if you could lose your salvation, if you could no longer be saved, and the devil could suggest to God that he has the power to save you, but he doesn't have the power to keep you. No way! God forbid! As the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, Paul says, I know in whom I have believed. I know in whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted him until that day. I am not just saved today, beloved. I'm going to be saved tomorrow. And I'm going to be saved the day after that because I didn't save myself. And the devil is not going to get the victory. God is going to make sure that that which he saved stays that way. And Moses says, God, you can't destroy him. You can't destroy him because you saved him. You can't destroy him. If you do, the devil is going to get the victory. You can't destroy them because you keep your promises. You keep your promises. And Moses said to him, God, you didn't just promise to get them out of Egypt. You promised that you would get them to the promised land. And you didn't make the promise to them. You made the promise to Abraham. 
Isaac and Jacob. You can't destroy them, beloved God. You can't destroy them because you are a promise-keeping God and you don't go back on your promises. That's why you don't lose your salvation, beloved. That's why you don't lose your salvation. Because God didn't just promise you life now. He promised you eternal life. He didn't just promise you a home now. He promised you a home in heaven, glorious with him. And he keeps his promises because his promises are not based on the promises that he made to you. They're based in the promises that he made to his son, that none that I have given to you will be able to pluck anyone, none of them, out of my hand. And all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Christ Jesus. Beloved, that's the dogma that undergirds the drama. Sinfulness of sinners, and we're well aware of that this morning. There is a righteous God who is not playing with sin. And the reason why we're here this morning is because we need Jesus who pleads our case and ever lives to make intercession for his people. He's a good Savior. He's a glorious Savior. He's a mighty Savior. And he has stood in our place, and he pleads for us every day. Let us pray and give God thanks for the Savior who saves.